ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Here's a question. If you listen to The Minefield, do you have to listen to it in order of show going back to 20... What year would it have been? 2015. Started episode one, which no doubt... In fact, I remember had many Batman references. I think we did a whole chunk of the show on Batman. It was about images, I think. Mm. Uh, and listen to every episode up until now. Is that... Sorry? Good memory. Yeah, I remember that one. I remember that episode well. Everything after it's okay. <laughs> Yes, to get the Minefield experience, do you have to listen to every episode in order, which means if you're listening to this on the radio or as a podcast, is it your obligation to hunt through the archives <laughs> and find every single Minefield, or can you just listen to it in any order you want? Look, mm. it's a chunky segue to where I'm trying to get to, but it's the <laughs> best chunky. I can come up with on the moment. <laughs> well, Ed Ali's my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Do you want to explain to our dear listeners, Scott, how that has anything to do with oh, the show? Oh, man. Um <laughs> Oh, okay, so people who have listened to the show know that we do try to diagnose certain cultural trends that we find ourselves in the middle of, that maybe we partake in unthinkingly, but that once we give them a little bit of thought, we can see that maybe there is a sacrifice here that is being made in the interests of speed, of convenience, of kind of seamless integration of technology and life. And maybe, just maybe, even if the innovation, the technology that we've now become so inured to is not, let's call it, an actual moral evil, maybe there's something about what's being lost in our adoption of it that we haven't fully reckoned with. So we referred, what, 18 months ago or something, to the clipification of events and news when things are distilled into bite-sized chunks, what exactly are we losing in the process of getting across so much quote-unquote information? What we're talking about today is the playlistification of music. Ah, uh, Is that good? Good. All right. So, how, how did we get to this point and what do we mean? So, I think it all begins with the gradual phasing in the mid-1990s away from CDs. So, roughly, we've gone from LPs to eight tracks, to cassettes, to CDs. Is that, that's about right, isn't it? Am I missing yep. anything in between? Uh, no, not that I can think of, no. So then in the mid-1990s, actually a German inventor uh, came up with the kind of algorithm that's needed to compress music in such a way that a song or a piece of music can be turned into a smaller file that can then be sort of transmitted digitally a little bit easier. The first wave of those were known as MP3s. And then, of course, we had MP3 players. So this Mm -hmm. is where people could take vast, or, you know, at the time, my God, I remember, vast amounts of music and download them onto an MP3 player. Or if you're really sophisticated, really sophisticated, you could take the songs that you had turned into MP3s and you could burn them back into a CD so that you could play them in your car. I'm mm. sure you did that, Bleed. Confess. Uh, no? I don't think I did, actually. I had a friend do it for me because he wanted to convince me that Deep Purple were better than Queen. Oh, my goodness. That was a losing Actually, battle. no, I lied because then I had to reply with a CD of Queen tracks, which I called an audience with Queen, which I was very proud of. <laughs> 
And then you're wondering... This is a digression. But basically, this is just a mixtape, right? It's, it's like a mixtape, yeah. Yeah, it's the same phenomenon that existed with cassettes. It was just done on different media. That's right. But then the invention of MP3 technology effectively created the conditions of possibility for uh, peer-to-peer file sharing, for torrents, mm-hmm. for yep. streaming. And this, of course, is what came to be known as digital piracy. It's usually associated with Napster, but you know, Napster was the most egregious, but it's hardly the only such pirating service that really placed uh, the whole dynamic, the way that we think about buying, listening to, acquiring music, it really sort of jeopardized it fundamentally. But it became clear, I think, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and here we have the uh, the release of the first iPod, you have the launch of the iTunes store where you could buy digital music legally. But again, you know, even then, even then, you could still only buy albums or you bought individual songs. I seem to remember $1.49 being roughly the, the price of a song. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. So there was something fundamental about the turning of music into compressed files, then the ability to share or stream or download music without going to the music store, without buying your CD, without purchasing your LP or whatever else, Uh, which, of course, then created this whole new world of having vast amounts of music on portable devices. This is where we get, you know, the idea of a pod from. And then the ability, it became kind of difficult when iPods didn't have screens. I think about the iPod shuffle or something, where you didn't really have screens. You put the stuff on and then you hit the shuffle button and then the the thing would automatically kind of scroll through the music that you had uploaded. That idea of shuffling is already interesting. I suspect that we're going to come back to it. Yeah, but don't forget that that begins with the CD. Yes, it does. So that was one of my favorite things about the CD was all the excitement of putting it on random, I think was the setting. Did you like that? Well, I liked it at the same time as I hated it. I know where you're going with this, and both of us will probably sit in the same area. In, that is that we are purists yeah, it's and true. traditionalists. And so I find it a very difficult thing to do to put on an album and not listen to start to finish. Yeah, I feel like right. I'm I'm violating something or I'm, I don't know, I'm doing something that's egregious for which I should one day be held to account. And so what that means actually is that I will often not put on a record because uh, it's a 45-minute record and I have 43 minutes, so I can't do it, which is absurd. There's probably an obsessive-compulsive thing in there, but I don't want to go too far into that but now. But hang on, hang on. I'm not going to let you yeah. abandon it too quickly. Yeah. That says something to me about you being an active listener rather than a passive listener. Yes, that's definitely true. But I, for all that, I can't deny there was a kind of excitement when the random button on the CD player turned up and... I would usually do it with stuff that I knew so well. Yeah, okay. That I felt like, I mean, I already have this imprinted in my brain, my consciousness. I like, I can almost conjure this album just by myself if I want to, hmm. right, within my brain. So it's not going to be overly corrupted by the fact that I've put it on shuffle. In fact, if anything, I'm like, I wonder what that sounds like when that song starts just out of nowhere. Hmm. And this is all very strange, but it would be a bit of a lark. It's not a way I would, it's not a habit. It wasn't the default setting for my listening. It was never that because I felt that the album had been constructed in a particular way and that that's the way that it was intended to be heard. And so therefore, out of deference to the artist, but also in a self-interested way to maximize the experience of listening to a body of work, I should be listening to it 
in the form that it was intended to look at. So in the same way as, I don't know, I wouldn't look at a painting by looking at the top right corner and then the bottom yeah, left corner. That's right. And I would treat it as a whole. Mm. Yeah. There are already so many things there, Waleed. I mean, the extent to which we ought to be, as listeners, we ought to be bound by the intention uh, that goes into the forming, the narrative structure of an album, the extent to which there is, in fact, or could be a narrative structure to an album, the idea that artists deliberate or agonize even. I know that, I mean, Dylan did, Queen did, Pink Floyd did, Joni Mitchell did. There's an intent- I reckon they all do. I think it's pretty hard to make an album without agonizing over the order of the tracks. Yeah, this is where... I think we need to return to that. Can we bookmark that particular? Because I I think that's decreasingly the case. I think increasingly... That might be true, but only to the extent that the album is decreasing as an art form. Yes, I think that's right. And increasingly, I think we have albums where the singles lead and then you've got the rest and songs are increasingly being produced. I'm loath to say written, but songs are increasingly produced (laughs) in order to cater to the settings in which they are going to be played. Uh, clubs, for instance, or sport matches, uh, or songs are being written precisely so that they can be aggregated into playlists that are algorithmically selected. But here we're getting just a little bit ahead of ourselves. So digital... Sorry, the one observation I would make, and this is always a point I've had to concede, is that the way you've described the album there, the modern album, Mm -hmm. which I think you're offering, and certainly I would be prepared to subscribe to this view as a vision of the album that is in decline. So it's an inferior, it's a degrading of the concept of the album or the, the album as a whole, the album, the album as, a, as, yeah. as an aesthetic object. Yeah. Yeah. Is how the album started. Yes, that's right. And we shouldn't overlook that. So there was a time, and when would it have been? Probably in the fifties, maybe the early sixties. Um, I think you could say this of the early Beatles albums, for example, where it really was just his 10 singles, basically. These mm. are the 10 hideous songs we got, and we're just going to put them there, and maybe the automated, maybe it didn't. I don't know. I wasn't around in, when they were making those decisions. But the album as a unified work is really a creature of probably the late 60s, and again, the Beatles are crucial to this. That's right. And then the album as high art certainly emerged from that, and you get you know progressive rock and all that sort of stuff where that became the whole thing, and you was it Jethro Tull were doing Thick mm-hmm. as a Brick, which had literally only one song on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he had to flip the record mid-song. Um, so there's a temptation, which I frequently succumb to, to say this is all degrading mm-hmm. the album. Mm-hmm. But in a way, it's actually returning us to its original form. Yeah, yeah. Look, I'm not trying to make a claim about aesthetic decline. I'm actually not. Oh, that's what I was up for. I, I do think the conditions of songwriting and the notions that go into album construction are becoming vastly different because I think the way in which music itself is being produced, the role that music plays in our life, I think, is changing quite dramatically. So let me just add one final piece to this puzzle. And then there's a point that I'd like to make, and then I'd be really interested in seeing how you respond to it. I honestly have no idea. I have a suspicion, but I just don't know. Yeah. So the only way that the existential threat, if we just go back to the mid sort of first decade of the 2000s. The only way that the existential threat posed by digital piracy could be overcome was for music to be streamed or accessed digitally, namely conveniently, and legally through approved sources. In other words, it had to be as easy or easier to acquire music digitally in order for the existential threat of of piracy to be put out to sea. 
Yeah, you had to counter the piracy with a, a legal equivalent. Yes, that's right. And then yeah. once you go from the convenience of buying individual songs and albums, it was only a matter of time, I think, until you had something like a streaming subscription service, much the same way as we now think of streaming um, video platforms, a streaming service. And here it's unavoidable to have to mention Spotify. What Spotify has done, if you think about what social media has done to our forms of communication and the way that we present ourselves publicly and what it's done to the dissemination of news and information and stories and uh, heartwarming human interest insights and recipes and fashion advice or whatever else. If you think about what social media has done to that, that's kind of what Spotify has done to music. So you can stream unlimited music uh, if you're fine to accept adverts then you can do it for free. Uh, if you're willing to engage in subscription service, then you can do that more or less without adverts. Uh, the whole idea of Spotify is to become a music monopoly. It is. Uh, and so I, I think to date, Willie, they have not yet turned a profit. Uh, it's the same logic that motivates a company like Amazon. You blow the other competition or out of the water. Yeah, yeah. Or, or Uber. You blow the competition out of the water, and then you start making money after that. So can I just say, though, the thing please. that's scariest about the scenario you painted there is the insertion of ads. So that's only tolerable if you have a view of music or really of art as being entirely consumable mm. and, enti and therefore entirely in the hands of the consumer. So what's the harm in ads if you're prepared to listen to them as opposed to one that accords any kind of authority or integrity to the artist and the artistic vision? Yeah. There's something, it seems to me, that's I'm always loath to use this as a um, metaphor now because it's become such a popular one and used in ways I don't particularly like. But there's, there's something inherently violent about inserting ads between the tracks of an album, mm. which would happen if you're listening to the whole album in the way you've described. Even more so, I think, perhaps, than just listening to a track in isolation from an album next to a track from a completely different album. It's, I don't know. There's something about that because it's almost the album, but it's, it's the album debauched. Yeah. Um, but of course, most people do not listen to albums on streaming yep. services like Spotify. What they will do instead is they'll do bespoke playlists. And then you've got the whole raft of recommendation algorithms so this is where you like listening to this kind of music. Once you reach the end of this particular song or this particular list that you've assembled, I'll have another track waiting for you that's more or less algorithmically speaking along the lines of what it is that you seem to like listening to. In other words, you know, giving you more or less uh, the same as your tastes have already seemingly dictated. Or you have the construction of playlists that are then given to you or recommended. To, they, these might be guest playlists or these might be algorithmically constructed playlists that accord to an activity that you're doing. This is a playlist for mowing, the, <laughs> mowing your yard or for working out or for running. Uh, this is a playlist for when you're down or for when you're having friends over. So, I mean, we could be talking here, if we were really being grumpy, about the overt commodification of music. I mean, music has simple raw material in order to be able to lend itself, to cater itself to particular moods, to whatever it is you might already be doing. This would be the moving of music out of the realm of anything that resembles art and into mere ambience, um, you know, the, the soundtrack of your life, uh, but in no way imposing itself. What interests me more about this, Walid? I've got two questions. So 
There's no doubt that the pairing of music and taste and the pairing of music and mood is not in and of itself inappropriate. I don't think anybody would claim that. Music doesn't exist without that. Yeah, yeah. There, there are some times, and I mean, this is going to say all sorts of things that probably aren't necessarily good about me. But, you know, there are times in the day when I cannot listen to Bach. I just cannot. The, <laughs> no, it's like the most mind-filled sentence ever. I, well, yeah. I'll find myself so emotionally vulnerable at a particular point that Bach will simply take over. Uh, it'll leave me too raw, too thin to be able to interact with what else is going on around me. I'll also say, okay, can I give you an even more minefield sentiment? Mm -hmm. So Brahms was one of the greatest, which is to say worst tryhards in the history of romantic <laughs> music. He desperately wanted to be as great as Beethoven and knew that he never could be. He desperately aspired to the genius of Bach and the virtuosity of Mozart, but he could never get there. And so some of his greatest music is the stuff that he left on the, on the floor, the stuff that was never gathered into Brahms' canon. I was overtaken. I was, I kid you not, I was weeping listening to the great young Russian pianist Daniil Trofonov perform live a Brahms' Five studies for the left hand. It goes for 23 minutes and it's only left hand. And it is a masterpiece because of its imperfections, because of its rawness and it's almost its resignation. I will never be great. I will never be great. And so the greatest thing that I produce is this bit of music that's being left on the side, that's merely there to warm a pianist up. And it is magnificent. So th there's some music, I think, that so violently, vitally pairs itself with a mood, but also brings you to a mood that maybe you didn't quite expect. Music doesn't simply cater to you. It also, at certain vital points, it has to arrest you, doesn't it? It has to take you out of your position of lethargy or passivity and bring you into a moment where you are so fully, wholly, vitally even morally present, that there's no possibility of looking away. I, I remember Zadie Smith, one of my favorite novelists, saying that she dare not listen to Joni Mitchell in the presence of other people or with headphones out in public because she fears that at some moment she'll either cease to exist because she's become so transparent in the face of the, of the, the piercing uh, personal and emotional force of, say, Joni Mitchell's blue album, uh, that someone will bump into her or a car will simply drive straight through her. Uh, there's some music that is so raw that you have to be so emotionally present to that it demands all of you. And it seems to me that... Yeah, I just, I just don't want to overdetermine this because the same music can also just be an accompaniment in a fairly unobtrusive way. Yes. For right. the same person, everyone would have experienced this. There are certain, it might be an album or whatever you listen to. And if you listen to it under the right conditions, perhaps with the right concentration, it strikes you in a completely different way. I remember I had that moment once with OK Computer, the great Radiohead album. And mm -hmm. it probably great took choice. me, because you know, I was listening to it on digitally, and so you know it, it counts how many times you've listened to it. Yeah. By the way, an illustration of just how obsessive-compulsive I was about this was, if I saw an album where the number of plays that my iTunes tracker was counting differed on any of the tracks, I'd be mortified. <laughs> And I'd have to figure out how I can even them up. Anyway, put that on one side. Well, I know I've never loved counter. you more. I've never loved you more than at this precise moment. Welcome to the most mindful show of every mindful show. Um, 
But what I remember from that, the reason the count is relevant is it took me 17 listens of OK Computer before I got it. And I went, oh, that? OK, this, is, this actually is one of the best albums ever made. But I was extremely tired. I was lying in bed. I had headphones on. You know, the conditions were right in a particular way. Yeah. And I think of someone who, you know, if you're talking about popular music, the, how many masters are there that could outdo someone like Freddie Mercury? But Freddie Mercury would describe his music as disposable. In fact, mm. the whole point he he meant for his music was it's like, a, I think he described it as like a tissue. You use it, you throw it away. Now, part of that's Freddie's style of downplaying everything. But what he's saying there, I think, is that there's perhaps even a certain virtue in the art form that is for that. Yeah, reason. that's right. That's right. So we've got to be very careful, I think, in any discussion of this kind to try to attribute singular uses to... Of course. ...music as a whole or even versions of it, so the album and even the song. Yeah. Right? I'm not um, saying that we can't observe these things. Like I, I always think one of the big turning points in contemporary music was that brief period where music was became ringtones. Yeah. And that became a, a really important function of the single was to be a ringtone. And I remember talking to a music academic about this. He alerted me to it. And he said, this is actually, he felt it was a terrible thing because it meant that the songs you would write that would succeed in that format, it's almost like they were no longer songs. That's my paraphrasing. They were designed for the ringtone and then there were these other bits that would just hang off them, but they weren't really composed as as songs. I'm aware of that critique and so you know what I've done? My ring I've never told you this. You know no. what my ringtone is? No. The Who's Baba O'Reilly. Really? It is. <laughs> Why? It's a song that I love. I mean, I love the Who. And it's the most ridiculously inappropriate. I don't know. All right. So you love the song and so you chose to make but it a ringtone. Can I just say it's also a temptation? Okay, I love the song so much. Am I actually going to answer it? Oh, uh, okay. This is the Scott Stevens doesn't like actually interacting with yeah, humans. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly yeah. right. Okay. okay. So, so sorry, just re really, really quickly. Yeah. I don't disagree with anything that you just said, and I'm not saying that the only way of listening to music is by leaning into it. One of the glorious things about music is the way that it can form a kind of ambience, the way that it creates, I think, a nurturing environment within which certain things can be done. My concern is, my concern is with the playlistification of music is that increasingly music is being reduced to the kind of raw materials that go into the kind of ambience that is meant to be the mood that is meant to be conveyed by a playlist, that increasingly songs are being written precisely in order to try to game the algorithmic system so that songs of a particular mm. variety, of a particular tone, of a particular beat are more likely to make their way into playlists, so much so that we'll have a kind of saturation of a particular kind of music. But my deeper concern beneath all that, Willie, is that with our increasing reliance on music as providing a kind of tone or a mood, a catering to where we are, my first concern is that we lose something vital about the capacity of being wholly present to music, of availing ourselves of the kind of music that stops you in your tracks, that arrests you at a particular moment, but even more than that, that we lose the capacity to be literate in the activity of listening to albums as a whole. And I think there are some songs, however good they might be as individual songs, divorced from their album, divorced from the narrative structure provided by that album. And the sonic structure. And the sonic structure. I think you lose yeah. something. I mean, can you imagine sampling one song out of Dark Side of the Moon? It's a very good example. Yeah, or, you can't. Oh, it doesn't work. Or Dylan's "Blood on the Tracks," or or Joni Mitchell's "Blue." I think in in each in each instance, the songs live individually. Okay, sure. There's a kind of breathing to them, but they're only fully alive and fully arresting 
when listened to as a whole. And I, I just think we would be losing something fundamental if we lost the capacity to listen to albums. Right. I agree with all that. I, I just wonder with this critique how much of that couldn't have been said of the invention of popular music generally. I mean, if you if you take the view, and I've heard people, even popular musicians, make this point, that actually the pinnacle of Western music is Beethoven, and after Beethoven, everyone's just trying to do a version of that and failing at it. I, one musician I know said, Beethoven's everyone's stern father who just looks disapprovingly down upon what they've tried to do, which is why musicians have a complicated relationship with it. Right? Yeah. If you take that view, then... The invention of songs generally is a retrograde step, isn't it? Because it you sacrifice that ability to listen to works of the the calibre and the scale of what a Beethoven produced. Yeah. Okay, we're uh, not going to get into I wonder it now. If the better approach to this is to say, yeah, those things will be lost. We need to be attentive to what we're losing at the same time as we perhaps should be attentive to the possibilities that new art forms okay. open up. Let me just say very briefly... I like the Beethoven point. It's fundamentally wrong and it misunderstands Beethoven himself. It seems to me I'll that... I'll let you have that argument with this friend of mine. I mean, it's Beethoven created the conditions of possibility within which the very kind of music that we're talking about can emerge. Anyway, maybe we can pick this up when we bring our guest in. But I'm a bit worried about our guest because normally, I mean, this show is predicated on people standing at a distance, pontificating who know nothing <laughs> really about what they're talking about. Happen. It's rare we have a practitioner <laughs> who can actually just tear us apart with a directness that I think we can't compete with. Um, nonetheless, we're rolling that dice. And our guest is someone that Waleed and I both love very much. Clara Bowditch is, how can I describe her? She's a musician, singer, songwriter, actress, author, storyteller, presenter, entrepreneur. She is simply Claire. Claire, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. <laughs> I'm also a very big fan and listener of this show, so it's a great oh. thrill to be here, and I can't wait to hear what you have to say next. Well, you've heard what we've had to say. I mean, are you still a fan of the show? <laughs> very much so, but I, I am quite touched by the tenderness and caring and concern with which we are pro approaching these questions mm. around this thing called music, as though it were something that we could describe and that we knew. And the thing about music is it's so much larger and mo more robust and more interesting than any modern viewing of it can possibly give us. Hmm. And so we, we enter, you know, it's a, sort of a huge topic that we're really talking about here. But the thing that I think I'd like to ask you both about is you've both spoken about this quality of listening that we bring to our experience of music. And in a way, we've been speaking about um, that potential for that quality of listening being ripped from us as though we were passively um, having something stolen from us. And I wonder what you think mm. about the concept of us actually having a choice in whether or not we continue to enjoy, you know, the fast food of music or mm. whether we sit down for full meals and what our relationship with that music is, what we bring you know, how it can affect our identity um, based on what we allow ourselves or don't allow ourselves to think or give to this experience. So I guess what I'm saying is I, I think it is relational and I think that is perhaps a more hopeful way for me to think about this idea of playlistification. And is the evidence for what you're asking us to consider there the resurgence of vinyl, for example? So to put this in context um, for our listener who may not work in the field of music, my experience is that the majority of people who are here in the world still making albums, full bodies of work, 
potentially on a theme. That's quite rare these days. Most musicians are not approaching the creation of songs necessarily from a themic point of view. But in the same way that, you know, you referenced before painting, if you're looking at a painting, you don't just look at one corner. But if you're looking at a series of paintings, for example, Sidney Nolan's, you know, work on Ned Kelly, there are a number of different options there. You know, each work in its own is individually important. And and that's the way I've come to think of songs. You know, there, there will be these sort of fantastical hit paintings that everyone wants to go to see and, and we, we imbue them with value and, and, you know, they become expensive and so on. But they're not necessarily the painter's best work. And that is where things get really interesting. You referenced before, um, you know, Dark Side of the Moon, for example. There are certain works that do belong in a body. There's Bonnever's Forever Forever. Mm, wow. There's, you know, and Joni Mitchell's work of Blue, which we've mentioned a number of times, is particularly interesting because of, oh gosh, there are so many reasons it's interesting because it is a, a, an album that's meaningful for so many people. But in Paved Paradise is the song that people know Joni Mitchell for mainly, and that's not her best song. Yeah. Very often an artist's best song is not within what is their best album. So I guess mm. I feel that any life that is exposed to music is enriched, and this is, you know, pro-socially, but also yeah, for, for all different reasons. But we can, you know, the quality that we bring in terms of listeners also affects our experience of what we get from it. Let me just pick up one tiny, tiny thread and I'll leave it to Waleed. I'm so glad the two of you brought up LP sales. I mean, I'm I'm not sure if you Mm -hmm. realize in 2023, LPs as a vinyl records, actual physical vinyl records has surpassed CD sales for the first time since 1988. It's actually quite extraordinary. And I would have only understood that as a kind of retro chic, you know, quasi nostalgic, uh, I'll go back to the really hardcore stuff. Um, My wonderful 15-year-old son has fallen in love with Kendrick Lamar. Loves him. Loves mm-hmm. him. Uh, and Good. I'm, yeah, I know. I have a hard time faulting mm-hmm. his taste when there's so much other crap that he could be <laughs> listening to. And his expression of his love and his appreciation of the albums that he's been listening to is he doesn't have a turntable, but over the last three months, we've been going out and sourcing Kendrick Lamar's vinyl records. And now he has a little collection. And what he wants for Christmas is a turntable and sound system. And for him, this isn't a kind of retro, this is an expression of love. If I really value this thing, then I want to be able to hold it. And I want to be able to see the liner notes. And I want to be able to open up and look at the pictures. And I want to try to possess something that it exists in limited quantities in a time, I'm not saying this is what he says, this is what I'm, <laughs> you know, in a time of infinite digital reproduction. And I think there's something about that mm-hmm. when we are swimming in music, there's something about the desire to say, at this moment, I'm going to invest a kind of love for something that mightn't be perfect. And in fact, the whole point of LPs is that they're not perfect, but these are objects of love that express something of value that it's not that I'm trying to possess something, but I'm trying to give myself to it as a way of saying, not only do I love this, but this is something that's worthy of love. And it just strikes me that even though the process of acquiring an LP is something that's acquisitive, you know, I'm taking something and bringing it to myself that the central motivation for that act 
is what's actually going on when you share an album or you share a song with somebody else. Why do we share music? We share it because I love this and I want you to love it too. It's part of this investment of a worthy object of love with our proper devotion. Mm. I have a friend who's a musician who would agree with you 100%. His name's Miles and he says that the reason we still make LPs is because they do give us an opportunity to engage more of the senses and actually really physically fall in love with an album in the same way that we do with a book. Now you look at the mm. machinations of, you know, the commercialization of music, the change of copyright in a digital age and so on. Why is it that we still love books and we have so much uh, and that authors are still able to make a living based on the sale of physical books, mm. not just digital books. And what happened there with music musicians around that 1990s, mid and so on, uh, digital changeover, why did they effectively, as musicians, we lost our ability to be able to make our living from the sale of albums, from music, because... Someone is making a lot of money now out of music, but the point zero 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 zero, whatever percent of a, a cent that you get from each stream does not allow you to make a living as an artist. Mm. So it's of great joy to me that people of my son's generation, your son's generation, so on, are falling in love with vinyl, not just because that allows an artist to have, you know, a means of making a potential living, but because they then have an opportunity to, yeah, enrich and really fall in love with the smell, the scent, the liner notes. It gives me great joy to think that they would have a similarly significant experience with an object that I was able to have in my childhood with albums. Mm. You still need that piece of technology in order to play it. That's the great advantage of books. Obviously, you can just carry them yeah. with you. They are their own technology. There's nothing else. Yeah. They are their own technology. There's yeah. nothing else. The, the other thing that a, an album does, as, as in vinyl, mm. is it tethers you. So Correct. So Identity if, markers and... Well, you know, no, sorry, yes. No, there's that. I meant it in a more mundane way. Uh-huh. You can't walk away oh. very far because in a few minutes you're going to have to come back and flip it. Or, nice. That's exactly right. So, so it's, it's asking something of mm. you, which is why you don't listen to records, certainly not now when records are a conspicuous way to listen. You don't listen in a passive way to them. Uh, as much because it's just harder to do it's that. such a great point that you're actually asked to give something to yeah. that experience. It's, yeah. You know, you're asked to take some risk or make some effort and you are rewarded. You know, you're rewarded not only by a, a richer experience and being attached to something and being able to create more meaning because more senses are involved and, and so on, but you're also able to access something which we haven't quite touched on, but, but I, I think we will now because I've heard it hinted at. The intention of the artist themselves. Yeah. What is Kendrick Lamar's intention or, you know, Taylor Swift even, when they're giving us a whole body of work? What was Paul Simon trying to give us when he gave us Graceland yeah. as a whole? You know, and so there's a beauty in contemplating that and engaging directly with that in that subtle way from listen after listen after listen, you know, when you finally click at the, what mm. was it, the 22nd? 17th. 17th listen. I remember it. I remember it very well. There's great, there's great um, richness to be, to be harvested if we are willing to see that in the context that it is. The thing is, though, 
all the technology up to the CD kind of forced you into that position. The record Correct. forced you into that position. I imagine when records were the only way you listened to music, you still listened passively in, and actively as you preferred. But nonetheless, there was something demanded of you. The cassette, oh, the cassette's fascinating because mm-hmm. I remember that experience of having wanting to listen to an album and going, oh, that's right, I'm up to that. And so it was kind of like, well, no, sorry, we're not letting you go back to, you can do that, you're going to have to press rewind and wait for the thing. And and so it's like, no, you're going to have to get through to the end of this. It's like a book, right? This bookmark here, that's your only option, right? So there so were those value. sorts of things. You're, you're talking yeah. about the question of value. Well, right? the values of that, if you value those or things, they were embedded in the technology. So now we have new technology that embeds different values, yeah. and they are values of immediacy. Um, convenience. Convenience, the listener determining these things. I suppose what I want to ask you, Claire, because you're the practitioner, right? You release these things, and you've done it in the CD era. Mm-hmm. and you've done it in the streaming era, mm-hmm. and let's say they're manifestly quite different. Do you see, I feel like we've gone on at length about the inherent advantages of that earlier era for the listening experience and for the artist integrity and so on. Do you see advantages to the streaming? Because if I were to mount an argument for playlistification, I think we've established I don't fully believe this argument, but if I were to mount it, it would go something like, the creation of the playlist is a heightened act of engagement. And it may not be that I'm fulfilling the artist's vision for that song in a particular way, but maybe I'm realising a potential that the artist didn't even recognise. Maybe I'm giving that song a new life in the same way as a song that ends up in Stranger Things or mm-hmm. a song mm-hmm. that ends up in, a, in Wayne's World or whatever gets new life breathed into it. Yeah. And so why... Should we not liberate the song from a, the confines of the artist's imagination? You note the you nod to the kind of hubris that it takes to <laughs> to even bother to create a thing like an album. You right. know, you have to believe in order to be, create a body of work that is thematically joined, and bother to sit there and ruminate about this order, that order, or so on. Uh, you have to have some sort of weird belief in you that it might mean something yep. to someone somewhere probably to yourself to start off with, okay? So we start from that point of view, but you're absolutely right. From that moment in time, this album does not belong to you anymore. It is out there to be used in whichever way the listener finds useful or appropriate. Um, You know, you can't even begin to imagine the many different applications of that, so you wouldn't bother. You do your work and it's out in the world. There are, for an artist such as myself who has never been played on commercial radio, I've always been an album artist or a song artist. I've had the great support of community radio and so on, but I'm not a commercial artist by way of, you know, they didn't choose to play my songs Mm. on their radio stations. Um, The advantage in my case is if you look at my Spotify account, for example, my most played song is not one of my own songs. It's a cover that I did <laughs> right. of a Crowded House song. Wow. Thanks to that cover of that Crowded House song. Now, there are a number of different ways you could look at it, depending on your mood. Mm. Thanks to that cover, I have had a great many opportunities. I, I think we actually perhaps were able to buy our first house thanks to this cover of a song, you know, 15 years ago that allowed us an opportunity to be exposed to an audience who would never have heard of me were it not for this cover. Whether or not they choose to go two, three, four tracks down or more interestingly back to the original work, uh, the first album or so on, is then an option for them. But without, in this modern age, without that cover, 
God bless your crowded house, which, you know, it sometimes annoys me to have to play it or not play it or so on. But mm-hmm. but generally I'm very grateful. Without that cover, I would not have a chance of, of having any of my work listened to or connecting there. So Right, but how do you see that? Do you see mm-hmm. that then as the benefit that comes from a necessary evil and I wish it were not this way, but given it's that way, obviously I take the benefit? Or do you see that as its mm-hmm. own virtue? Again, it depends on which day you catch me, but I think in general, (laughs) it has never been a straightforward game to try and Mm. make your living out of music. So from from the perspective of a songwriter or someone who captures, you know, I'm sitting there, uh, these songs come and I want them to find a home. If that is my impulse as a songwriter, then we have a win-win. You know, it wasn't like Beethoven or others didn't have to compromise, you know, work to commission or so on. But I feel that the key thing that we find in someone like Kendrick Lamar or other artists of this time who we find are unique is their ability perhaps to have that quality of, yes, conscious conscious creation of music, but also something unconscious, some balance there that is not so cynical that it's not alive still. There's nothing that I hate more than going in to get a coffee at the... For example, if I'm stopping at a petrol station and I hear a song that I know has just been written to catch my mind, like an ear right. bugum, like an, you know, germification, like an earworm, mm. that's annoying. You don't respect that as its own achievement? I, I respect it as an act of commerce. Not as an act of art? I mean, it's a hard thing to do, otherwise everyone would do it. I think it's a very hard thing to do well. I think a song that, for example, if you look at a major hit of, of the last decade, you might look to Wally DeBacker or Gautier, somebody that I used to know. A global hit also happened to be a friggin' cracker of a song, yeah. interesting for many reasons. Unusual sort of pop song, though. Unusual. So the one you're talking about in the petrol station is a different sort of a song. It, it provides a different function than that of Leonard Cohen's um, poetry albums or Johnny Mitchell or other ones. Uh, Scott, what do you think? Look, one of the things that strikes me, and let me say a word for playlists. Mm-hmm. I mean, what I really find that I increasingly disdain are algorithmically created playlists or the whole recommendation engines. Um, you don't, th- th- this is why, for instance, I mean, I, okay, 98% of what I listen to is not modern music. Um, for me, just about everything kind of ended after Chopin. Um, so that's just about <laughs> as far as I, just as far as I can go. And I've heard you say that before, but it I is know true. There, are, there are variations, there are anomalies, but yeah, go on. I know. Okay. And recommendation engines do not work. That's right. They're awful. They're crude at this stage, aren't yeah, they? Yeah. What about when they become good, though, Scott? Well, like that friend that always recommends exactly the right thing. Okay. But well, actually constructed playlists mm. that reveal a kind sense. of inner love, an inner recognition, a deeper knowledge. So, I mean, Claire, you just raised a cover. I mean, I think excellent covers are some of the purest, most wonderful works of art because they're not, it's not a blank sheet. It's something that you're actually grappling with and then creating something new out of the material that's already there. It seems to me that genuine recitals, I mean, really exceptional recitals, do something similar. So again, let me just give one current example and one sort of older example. Daniil Trofonov, this kind of magical Mm. young Russian pianist, pairing in a recital... Brahms' five studies for the left hand. And then pairing that, you go directly into Bach's contrapuntal fugues, which are the epitome of perfection. The juxtaposition of those two things works at an emotional level. It's not contrast. There's a deeper spirit there. There's a 
there's a love that's spoken between those two forms of music that so far exceeds the capacity of a playlist to populate that I think is extremely suggestive. But also, if we, if you attend a concert of a really good touring band, I mean, one of my favorites is Pearl Jam, what they will do with hits and B-sides, for instance, or with covers and new works, swapping between the two in such a way that you never know quite what's coming, and yet when it's come, there's a deeper knowledge of what it is that's going on in the inheriting of, say, a Jimi Hendrix song, uh, or something from Dylan, or something from ACDC, for instance, brought into the Pearl Jam canon, uh, that then becomes revelatory in a way that I never could have anticipated. And I think that there's something similar going on there. When you create something out of the existing materials of music that you love into something that is revelatory in the same way, that's not passive listening. That's the kind of musical enjoyment and then the desire to share. I mean, that's what playlists are for, right? You want to share them. Right. And, to... and is that heightened in this age? What? It's certainly easier, isn't it? It's certainly more convenient. You yeah. Know, you used to hunt for days, weeks, months to find. You might have had to fly in from overseas that Donny Hathaway live album that didn't <laughs> exist here in Melbourne. So there was a joy of waiting for it. Mm. But gosh, it was annoying. Yeah. What to create the playlist was... Yeah. So the mixtape was hard, right? And yeah. so you would do it occasionally, but you wouldn't do it as a daily thing. So these days it's much more convenient to do that. But what Scott's perhaps pointing to there is there is a difference in significance there because the curator of that playlist, in that case, in your case, being Pearl Jam, being the artists themselves, that can, if we choose to engage with that and trust that artist, we have the possibility of significance, meaning all of the things that are at the core of our hope as humans. Mm. That doesn't exist when there's an algorithm who's choosing for us yet. And when it does in the future, when the algorithm becomes more and more sophisticated, what is it we're attaching to then? Mm. What opportunity is missed there? Because at least with Pearl Jam or with with Jeff Buckley's Grace, for example, yes, when he wow. chooses to do a cover of Corpus Christi hmm. and to do a cover of Leonard Cohen's Alleluia, thus giving Leonard Cohen actually a resurgence in his career and so on. We saw magic there because it came through the mouth and body and experience of the synthesizer, this artist called Jeff Buckley. What if the magic, though, came via an algorithm? That's right. What happens then? Is it still not magic? Yeah, that's a great question and one very... Very much worth pondering over. There you, you, is, don't, you don't have an inclination? Well, I, I, have a, I have an impulse and I'll say this. The thing is, you know, Jeff Buckley, who I was a great fan of, was a human being. And there was something in the experience of a human being creating something, and this could just be an imagined experience, that was significant to me because I too was a human being. The experience of seeing him play live gave me the courage to start mm. my music career, actually. I can never have that level of connection with an algorithm imaginatively. Mm. So if I know it's you, Waleed, or you, Scott, who've gone to the care and trouble of making a playlist for me, I feel not only known and seen uh, but less alone in the world and more connected. If it is an algorithm that's choosing that for me, that's a different sense and quality. So I think it is too, but you and I are formed in a different Correct. era, which is not one where the algorithm dominates everything. And I would say we're still not in that era. Like it, I'm thinking of the era to come where it's yeah. doing it really well. 
But a lot of people are quite happy to receive ads that are curated according to their algorithm because they actually get to hear about stuff they want. People are quite happy when a streaming service Mm. suggests the show you might also like and it turns out that they do like it. Um, There's no doubt that there could be some potential in use in it. I'm not a purist in this way. Okay, well, well, no. I, I don't think anybody would really argue that there's not a use in it. But what is being lost? What's the cost, yeah. The cost is... So, but the cost that you assess, we are assessing as people who have grown up in a certain environment that no, we therefore value that cost. No, no, this isn't about cost and value. The example of a cover, I think, is a fascinating one. Because what a cover is, is an act of love. I mean, you mm. know, you know when a singer is just going through the. So, th- this would be the difference between a cover and a tribute band. A tribute band is not necessarily an act of love. A cover is an act of love. And I think. A, because the artist has brought something of that's themselves right. to that's the right. interpretation. And when you and give to bring someone, something of yourself, you have to have a self. That's right. Yep. That's right. And then when you give someone, say, a recital or a lovingly curate, what you are doing is you are inviting people, you're inviting the mm-hmm. group with whom you're sharing this. This is something that I love. I want you to see what I love through my eyes. I want you to hear what I love through my ears. And there's no way that an algorithm can even simulate that. These might appeal to taste. These might appeal to mood. But the invitation, I want you to hear what I love through my ears. I want you to see this proper object of love through my eyes. It seems to me that that intentionality that goes beyond the artist's intentionality, there's something there that I think that if we lost it, I think we'd be very, very sad indeed. You'll have to forgive me, but I've just been reading a fair bit about and thinking a fair bit about people who fall in love with chatbots. Yeah. And so that's why I wonder. Yeah. Yes. The the ability of artificial intelligence mm. or the algorithm or whatever we want to call it to displace those things that are fundamentally human and for us to fall for it so, is extraordinary. I think the greatest fear I have for AI in general is not whether or not it's sentient, but what happens to us when we begin to believe it is? Yes, when it displaces the sentient in our lives, yeah. And this is why we must go out and see live music and live musicians. That still is one place where we... It's almost like you're walking into a room with a perfume with 43 notes or scents. Wow. As opposed to the listening experience at home on a digital device that might give you seven So that's true, but it also makes me sad because one of the things that was so great, I think, about that probably brief period from the late 60s through to maybe the, what, early 80s at most, was it the album and the studio creation. I'm sorry, were you just trying to refer to the greatest period of time of of studio (laughs) pop albums ever? Was that, were you just putting like 80 something? Was that, well, I don't know. Where would you, would you object to my boundaries? I'm talking about the the sort of the album as high concept. Okay. Studio creation as its own art form. I I think it continued until the 90s. You think so? Yeah. What happened in the 80s that you would put in that category? Which works of art occurred in the 80s that, that I would include in that conversation? In that category, yeah. So Graceland from Paul Simon, yeah. you mentioned it before. Would you, yeah. would you count that? I just have it in a very different category to, you know, the Sergeant Peppers of the world. Really? Or, yeah, because there's something about the studio. I feel like a lot of what's on Graceland you could capture live. But it was that introduction of, you know, Lady sure. Smith Black Mambazo, the story of divorce, the um, development of an artist who was known as a folk, like there's a lot. All that, yeah. all that, but the idea of the studio process and the album as the art form, maybe the album is the art form is different. Playfulness, experimentation, seeing what happened, all length that. of time. I feel like that? you could have expressed that live. I see, I see, I see. Whereas the art form, the there studio. Was a random possibility of randomness. Yeah. 
the studio as an instrument. Mm. I feel like that emerges mm. through that late 60s period. And there's something about that as not realisable in quite the same way now. I see your point. Yeah. But, but you were on another point. Actually. Oh, no, I forgot about that point. Don't worry about that point. That point's over. Welcome to the minefield. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Look, again, I just sort of say I love the tenderness and concern with which we're bringing to this. I think it's so incredibly subjective. But Mm. but I think one of the things I will ponder on, and I hope our listener does too, is the richness and possibility of the experience that we have, the relationship that we can have with music, is like any other relationship Mm. in terms of the degree and quality of care and interest and curiosity and faith that we bring to it does relate to how much, how much it means to us. We have the option to opt in or opt out. Yes, I accept that point at the same time as I think it's limited because you could make the same point of news. You could make the same point of television. But there comes a point where the convenience, the ubiquity, the gadget, you don't have much Wind. faith in, in our ability to... Well, if I see what's happened to news, no, and the way people consume news. Yeah, but news had a, a particular survival, you know, news hooks immediately into our survival function at all time. Yep. So it's there to keep us safe. So, so music's so different. I think music's different because it provides a much broader set of potential, I hate talking about it in terms of functions, but yeah, possibilities, yeah. moods, you know. It taps different nerves. Taps different nerves, but it also is allows us to to create identity in different ways, allows us oh, to... Oh, there's a fair bit of identity creation in news. I mean, but that's what they're seeing. But do you mean which we listen to and which we don't? Yeah. The way in which news well, and the politics alloyed to news now informs people's identities is at a level I've never seen before. See, this would be interesting, though. Imagine if news were subject to playlists and algorithms. Well, and it so is. On. That's yeah. what's happening. But imagine if I'm watching news of a particular bent. Yeah. And all of a sudden what's juxtaposed with that is a completely different point oh, of view. Oh, randomised. Correct. That would be different. Wouldn't that be interesting? That would be different. Claire, it's a joy. I don't want to go, guys. Oh, I want well, to move in, w- but I appreciate You can stay. <laughs> they just won't broadcast it. But you can stay. We can keep talking. I can't tell you how thrilled I am to have been a guest. Thank you for oh, inviting It's a fraction me. of the thrill that we're experiencing. So Claire Bowditch, uh, award-winning Australian musician, actress, author, storyteller, radio presenter. There's oh, a bunch wow. of stuff I left out, Scott. I'm sorry. Yeah. We just don't have time. Uh, she's our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is now at an end. And we'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.